Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. to listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank the Supremes for writing and performing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Before we get rolling, I want to thank everyone who has participated in our Facebook group. The group is booming. I put up questions for this show like, uh, not even 24 hours ago, like 12 hours ago. And I had a hard time finding the, the post because there were so many other messages. So it's booming and you are welcome to join. Uh, just look up, search, stick to wrestling on Facebook. It'll come right up and I will admit you. If you want to follow me on Twitter, just search John McAdam and follow the guy who has the stick to wrestling logo as his avatar. I haven't even announced the show yet. Hi, I'm John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. You probably already knew that. One last quick thing, talking about Twitter. A really good Twitter person to follow, if you are a classic wrestling fan, Lalani Kai, former WWF Ladies Champion, wrestled at the first WrestleMania. Her account is fantastic. She has all kinds of great photos from both in and outside the ring from like the 70s 80s and 90s she's absolutely great i cannot recommend that twitter follow enough and with that i want to bring on we're going to talk about 1987 again because it's you know people seem to like it and why not and we took questions from the facebook group but uh before we get into that our guest randy smith popular returning guest randy how are you Doing good. Thank you for having me back. You're very welcome. Randy, I, I want to talk about one thing before we get rolling, and that is, I mean, 1980, it's 2022, right? 1982 me would hate me for saying this. 1992 me would be furious at me for saying this. 2002 me would be like, oh, man, you got old so ungracefully. We're recording this at the very end of August, and for the first time in my life, I cannot wait for summer to be over. It has been such a hot, long summer. I've never been like this in my life, but I want it to be over. I hear you. We haven't had rain here for about um, half, three weeks to a month now. We didn't oh, have man. rain. Yeah, we're, we're pretty dry here. Yeah, we we this summer we have not get gotten rain. We've gotten thunderstorms. It's either like coming down in buckets or we're not getting rain. It's all weird this summer. All right. Anyway, Randy, I'll tell you what. We took questions from the group specifically about the year 1987. I'll tell you what. I want you to pick the first question because you are the guest and give me your answer or your opinion. Okay. Um I wanted to talk about, there was a question asked about the uh, the UWF merge there, and if uh, Steve Williams and Ric Flair should have had a unification match at Starcade. What's your opinion on that, Randy? Great, great question. Um, the whole UWF-NWA merge, that, that could be a whole topic in itself. Yep. Uh, here's what, uh, they... It, they were bought out. The UWF, uh, they, they were nothing more than, you know, eliminate the competition. 
Uh, when when they bought them, they had no plans to do anything with them. The only guys who actually made out were Sting and Rip Steiner. They were the only ones that you know from the UWF that went anywhere. Um, they never had planned. I mean, they you know pretty much. I, I think they could have done a lot more with the whole Terry Taylor and Nikita Koloff unification. Um, but talking about the big unification, the UWF and the NWA title, uh, how I would have played that off, I, I don't think Steve Williams and Ric Flair would have been a good draw, no. Um, Steve Williams worked good with guys like Terry Gordy and, you know, One Man Gang. He, he was a, a brawler. Ric Flair was more of a technical guy. Uh, Ric Flair could have a good match with anybody, but I don't think he and Steve Williams would have went over. What I would have done, and what would have been terrific, UWF was bought out in April of 1987, around summertime. I would have had Barry Windham take the title from Steve Williams. Show Barry on TV with the title, have Barry build up that UWF title, and at Starcade, have Ric Flair against Barry Windham in a unification match. That would have lit the world on fire. A, a Ric Flair and Barry Windham match at Starcade in 1987, you could not, you couldn't get a better match out of two guys anywhere at that period in time. I agree, and had the only negative about that is they did Barry Windham versus Ric Flair at the very beginning of 1987, but they were great matches, and you had to go to the arena to see one of them. So it's not you know pay per view arena; it's a totally different thing. Had I had I gone along with your scenario, Randy, I would have had Barry Windham win the unification match uh, just to. I mean, he's he's a. a, a world championship worthy wrestler by the way jamie ward basically asked the same question um how would i or we have booked uh the uwf versus nwa uh merger if you would they never really did it as a merger but i would have done it as a merger i would have had uh bill you know jim crockett and bill watts get out there and just say hey you know we've merged promotions it's going to be you know it's going to be one promotion. I mean, that's a lie. Jim Crockett bought him out. And I absolutely would have had a UWF versus NWA war. And I would have, I absolutely would have started it by having Michael Hayes, who has been compared by Bill Watts to Charles Manson, get out there and tell Ted DiBiase, Hey, we got to come in here and stick together, man. And, you know, we once put you in the hospital with a pile driver, and later you and I teamed, we can do it again. Ted DiBiase, who is a heel at heart, could have gone along with this, could have said, you know, he, he could have said, he at least appeared to be interested. Steve Williams could have been the guy saying, you know, what are you doing? What are you thinking? And Bill Watts could have been the guy to convince Steve Williams. Next thing I would have done is I would have had the UWF guys, the Freebirds, Dr. Death, DiBiase, whoever else, attack the four horsemen. Not Dusty Rhodes, not Nikita Koloff. I would have turned the horseman babyface. And then Dusty, Nikita, etc., are willing to help out, just like Dusty Rhodes was willing to help out Ric Flair in the cage in 1985, and see where that see where that got him. But it would have been a repeat. Now, in 1987, I would have been called crazy for trying this. Oh, and I also would have had Bill Watts attack Jim Crockett Jr. on TV. 
I would have had the UWF as the baby faces in Dallas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Arkansas, etc. And in 87, I've been like, no, that's crazy. You can't do that. But we learned when Vince, when Jerry Lawler came to the WWF in 92, 93, that you can do it. He was a, a baby face in Memphis and a heel in the WWF. And of course we learned that it could, it did work when Bret, Bret Hart was a baby face in Canada in 1997. But with hindsight being 2020, that's what I would have done. Also, they unified the UWF and NWA TV titles, yet they just let the UWF title disappear, which I thought was a big mistake. But I, I like your scenario, get a better UWF champion than Steve Williams. And by the way, he did have matches with Ric Flair in 1988, which were said to have been really disappointing. And yeah, I like your idea. Just get a better UWF champion. Well, your idea too. I mean, they're, they're both ideas that so much more could have been done with that than, than they did. I mean, they basically dissolved it. They didn't even really try. Uh, It's sad. You you had a lot of talent there, and you had so many different angles that you could have taken that talent. They pretty much did nothing. They they did nothing. I mean, they had the big uh, summer tour with the NWA and UWF Supercards, which, you know, drew okay, but they didn't draw any better than the ones before them. I mean, it was, my understanding was Dusty, uh, Crockett just bought it for the syndicated network. He didn't care about the talent. And you know how wrestlers are. I mean, they hear about the, you know, okay, we now have the UWF with all this talent, one man gang, Williams, DiBiase, at least at first. Uh, the Freebirds, and I'm sure I, I don't want to pick on anyone specifically. Just hypothetical ex- example: Tully Blanchard or, or Arn Anderson is like, oh my god, my spot. And Dusty's got. Don't worry about your spot. I'm not pushing these guys. And supposedly Dusty was not interested in pushing the UWF guys. Mm-hmm. And Sting was a complete accident, by the way. If you look at what they did in 1987 with Sting, you know he was just another guy, and they. Brought, they gave him the run against Ric Flair in early 88 just to keep Flair busy while they, they waited for the Lex Luger uh, scenario to unfold. Uh, Sting, he got over, but they didn't plan to get him over. It was just, like I said, just a thing to keep Flair busy while Lex Luger got hot. And again, the, the whole thing, Sting, he was great at that time. I, I you could you could tell by watching him that especially after that clash match in in eighty eight. I mean, we're going into eighty eight here, but especially after that match, I mean, you could tell he was he had that drive and the charisma, and people loved him. And you could tell he was going to go further. I don't. I agree with you. I don't think they expected him to pretty much do anything. Uh, that was kind of evident. I mean, in in the uh, take a look at the Starcade '87 opening match. Yeah, I mean, you had you they put Sting with uh, Eddie Gilbert and Rip Steiner. Uh, you know, three of the UWF guys right there, and I think it was Michael Hayes, Jimmy Garvin, and, no, Larry Zbyszko. Oh, not Larry Zbyszko. No, Michael Hayes, Jimmy Garvin, and Sting against Larry Zbyszko, Eddie Gilbert, Rip Steiner. Yeah, and. 
they they threw him into that match, and he really had the only high spot in that match, which, you know, diving over the top rope, you didn't see that too much back in the day, but he did that during the match, and uh, Sting got over. He did, and it was right around that time, right around Starcade time, where I read that Vince McMahon or the WWF was interested in Sting, and I always had the feeling that... Dusty Crockett, whoever said, "Okay, if Vince wants this guy, there must be something to him. We we should use him." Yep. All right. Mark Wiggins asks, "Who else was offended during the Hogan Andre build up in 1987 by the WWF treating it as their first meeting? I hated that, but it was part of their ignoring their own history prior to 1984 and the cartoon and ice cream bar era." Here's what I have to say about that. And and he's right. The WWF was really good at keeping things simple. Could they have put out a storyline that Hulk Hogan used to be this bad guy managed by Fred Blassie and and turn him into a redemption story? They didn't. That might have been an interesting angle, but not for the WWF audience. And Vince was going after... Uh, you know, like junior high kids as his median audience. And, you know, he there was nothing subtle about that WWF. It was like Hulk Hogan, all-American hero, end of story. He's like a Stallone or a Schwarzenegger character come to life uh, in pro wrestling. So to, to answer Mark's question, I, I'm not offended by it. I, I get what they were doing. And, I, of course, I was one of the people laughing, saying, yeah, they only wrestled about 100 times, including it being announced on WTBS that they were wrestling in Atlanta, <laughs> you know, or on WOR TV, which a million people watched every week, it didn't matter. I mean, I knew it, and I, I kind of just said, okay, Hogan and Andre wrestle, but not this Hogan. This is like a different guy. Right. Uh, they did ignore, I mean, anything, I think, see, the, the first Hogan-Andre happened during the Vince Sr. era, this Hogan-Andre, Vince Jr. era. I think he he pretty much was trying to eliminate the past when it came to that because he had his direction. He always looked in that direction. He never looked back. And like you said, he could have he could have done a storyline there where, you know, okay, this is what happened in 1980, but would it really have made that much of a difference? You you couldn't really build up WrestleMania three match between the two of them any better. I don't think it would have made a difference one way or the other, whether they did that or not. I think, I think it would have confused people. It could have confused people. And as far as being offended, I wouldn't say I was offended by it, but it it would have been kind of cool if it were mentioned, Hey, these two did meet before. Here's what happened seven years ago put together like a one or two minute, you know, segment on it. It wouldn't have hurt nothing, but I don't think it would have helped anything either. I I think it was just a road that they, they didn't need to go down. I mean, when Hogan first came back in January, 1984, they, they, he came out with Bob Backlund and Bob Backlund said, Hey, this is a, he's a new man. He's a changed man. I'm in his corner. And that's as far as they went with it. And really, in my opinion, that's 
all they needed to do. You know, you're you're focusing on WrestleMania three, not you're you're no longer that regional promotion that you were in 1981. So or, or 1980 and 1981. So I I actually kind of think they did the right thing by just you know not looking backward, looking forward. Hey, this is the first time they've ever met, and 90% of the people bought it because what 14-year-old wrestling fan living in Phoenix or Des Moines, wherever, is going to know that they've ever, they, they'd wrestled before six years ago? Right. Then you had guys like like you and I who, you know, there were people that knew it happened. I mean, it you know, it would have been cool to rehash that, but they didn't have to. And you know what? Another point is that it's not like they, okay, they said it was the first time ever. It's not like they drove us away. We both watched WrestleMania 3. Everybody did, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you're a wrestling fan, you're in. All right, your turn for a question, Mr. Smith. Uh, I'm looking at one from uh, Mark Hurtwick here about, uh, talk about, let's talk about Ronnie Garvin with the transitional title here. Yeah, transitional champion. Uh, JCP put the NWA title on Ronnie Garvin in 1987, which most would agree was a booking failure. If Garvin was not available, who would you have booked to take his spot as a transitional champ before eventually dropping the title back to Flair at Starcade? That's kind of a kind of a tougher question. I think I, I don't think Ronnie Garvin was a horrible decision. I mean, putting putting the belt on him for that two-month period certainly didn't hurt anything, but I think everybody knew that he wasn't going to be... I mean, I, I can't even recall a match that he had as the uh, NWA champ. He might have had a, a squash match or two on TBS, but you know, there was never any kind of title defense that I recall or anything, but then again, that was 30 years. I, I could be forgetting, but I, I don't recall anything. Uh, like I said, I don't think it hurt anything doing that. Could they have picked a better guy? They could have picked a better guy if they would have kept the belt on him longer. My, of course, my first, the first off the top of my head would be Barry Windham. There was nobody, including Flair, better than Barry Windham. You know, in, wow. in 1987, I, I, I will die on that mountain. Ric Flair was not as good as Barry Windham in 1987. Barry Windham was better than Ric Flair in 1987. I'm, I'll die on that hill. Bold statements. I love it. And uh, I, I think Barry Barry deserved that title, but he didn't deserve the title to be a two-month transitional champ. All they wanted that for, there wasn't a clean finish at Star Kids since 1983. You know, when, when Flair pinned race in 83 to win the belt back. 84, dusty finish. 85, dusty finish. 86 with Nikita, dusty finish. They needed a clean title change at Starcade. They needed to put the belt on somebody for a month or two. Ronnie Garvin fit that mold perfectly. I I don't think I don't think it was a bad decision to put the title on him at all for what it was. If you're talking more of a long-term champ, I would have rather have seen it on Barry Windham. I I don't think they had to do what they did. Okay, we're going to have Ric Flair lose to someone and two, three months later regain it at Starcade. I actually do agree with you that they they 
really, I don't, I don't know if the word needed is the word, but it, yeah, we can go with needed. They needed to have finally a, a clean finish at Starcade. Uh, what I might have done would have Lex Luger have a hostile takeover as the head honcho of the horseman and have Lex Luger versus Ric Flair, a babyface Ric Flair at Starcade. Um, although I do know that part of their plan was to eventually make Lex Luger, eventually, like 1988, make Lex Luger their own Hulk Hogan. But I, I don't think, like I said, I, I don't think you, they should have or needed to do that. But let, let's talk a little bit about, a little bit about Randy Gar. Ronnie Garvin in an offhand way, and this is what I'm talking about when I'm saying he was not pushed properly beforehand. I was watching like six, seven years ago. I was watching some old 1987 uh, World Championship Wrestling shows, the 605 show, and this is before uh, there was such a thing as WWE Network. And Tony Schiavone, out of nowhere, says, and we'd like to say hi to Randy Smith out of Reading, Pennsylvania. And I was just like, What? <laughs> I mentioned this, and Randy's like, "Can I have a copy?" I'm like, "Oh yeah, definitely." But um, but speaking of that show, they had a match. It was part of the uh, championship challenge series. It was Ivan Koloff, Nikita Koloff, and Crusher Khrushchev defending the six man titles against Don Kernodal, Pez Whatley, and Ron Garvin. Now we know who lost that match. Ron Garvin did not get pinned. It was Don Kernodal. But, I mean, putting Ron Garvin in that situation just tells everyone, hey, he's not a star. And if you're going to come, if someone comes back and says, well, Garvin didn't get pinned, okay, but you didn't see Dusty Rhodes in those matches. You didn't see Magnum TA in those matches. When Nikita Koloff turned, you didn't see him put in that position. The whole thing screamed, this guy is not a star. And that is part of why Ron Garvin winning the NWA title was such a disaster. That That's just like the perfect example that I remembered from like rewatching this stuff six, seven years ago. Yeah, he, the credibility wasn't there for him to have big gold. Uh, even, even looking at him, I know he was out on a lot of interviews holding the belt. I do remember that. And it, it just didn't work for me. But, oh yeah. Uh, like I said, I don't think it hurt anything because everybody knew Flair would get the belt back at Starcade. And, and to me, like I said, that that to me that's not good booking. If everyone knows that, okay, they put the belt on on this guy just to have Ric Flair win it back at Starcade. No, oh, by the way, yeah, they did that a little bit in '83, but Flair was the babyface, so you're coming out to see Ric Flair win the title. Now, you know, now flares the heel. In, in theory, people should not be wanting to see that. I don't know. But anyway, um, AJ Montgomery asks, do you think Rick Rude could have been a better fit to replace Ole Anderson as a horseman had he not left for the WWF in 1987? My honest opinion was no. In the end, Rick Rude had a better career than Lex Luger. He was a better overall performer throughout his yeah, not throughout his career, but you know, if you want to evaluate the careers, he was better than Luger. But in nineteen in early nineteen eighty seven, when Lex Luger showed up on WWF TV, it was like I mean, when he was in Florida, we all knew he was gonna be a huge star. And it was almost like 
like Jadavion Clowney or, you know, someone, a big college football star, a big college basketball star that you can't wait to see in the pros. That's what Lex Luger was like. Rick Rude had a little bit of that, but, but in 19, in the beginning of 1987, I cannot imagine Rude being a, a better pick than Lex Luger to join the Horsemen. As a matter of fact, I'm not even sure Rick Rude despite all of his talent would have been a really good fit for the horseman. I think he was great as the number one guy in the dangerous Alliance, but the horseman, he just didn't seem to be a fit. Lex Luger was a perfect fit. Your thoughts, Randy. Pretty much on the same wavelength. Rick Rude, um, even though I, I, I really did like he and Manny Fernandez as the uh, tag team champs in 86, Rick Rude, he's more of a, a singles guy. He doesn't really... You don't have to have Rude with a faction. You don't have to put him with a group or in a tag team. Rick Rude could do his own thing as Ravishing Rick Rude. I don't know if he would have gelled. I mean, thinking about that now, I before I read the question, I don't think I ever thought of Rick Rude as a horseman or what he would have been like with them. I don't think it would have been horrible, but in no way would he have been better than Luger. Uh, Luger, that was the perfect spot to, to put Luger in right, you know, right off the bat. Rick Rude, he still had a little bit of developing to do, too. I mean, he wasn't totally established yet. People didn't know him the way they knew Luger. Um, I don't think it would have worked out as good as Luger did. I don't think it would have totally failed, but I don't, I don't think he would have had a long run with the Horsemen if they put him in there. No, Rude, I mean, from what I understand, in real life, too, he was kind of a loner. Uh, Bobby Heenan talked about it in his book that, you know, Rick Rude would, instead of getting in the car with four guys and sharing expenses, he'd just go by himself. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's pretty consistent about what I've heard about Rick Rude over the years. You mentioned the Rick Rude-Manny Fernandez tag team. When they first wheeled it out there, and, you know, at first it looked like kind of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, a, a mongrel tag team. And then they gave them the title match against the Rock and Roll Express. They announced it a week late, uh, a week earlier. And I was like, okay, they're going to win the titles. I thought it was that obvious to me that, all right, here's what they're doing with this tag team. And it was it, it was one of those things where, using your word, it just didn't gel. Rude and Fernandez and Jones, it sounded good on paper, but once you got it on the television, it just wasn't that good, in my opinion. It, it, they, they did not have chemistry, and I think uh, both of them hated Paul. Paul Jones hated both of them in real life. Paul Jones has talked about it. Yeah, he, he didn't like either one. Yeah. So, I mean, that, you know, when you're on the road together in close quarters, you got to do stuff together, and these two guys are laying Cleveland steamers in your top hat, it tends not to make good chemistry. <laughs> well, that and, and Manny, the way, I mean, it, it, listening to a Manny Fernandez shoot interview is really, really humorous. It, it, Nobody, nobody with any logic would believe half of what he says. And, you know, when he talked about the tag team with Rick Rude, you know, he talked about how Rude knew that he was in charge and, you know, he was. It, 
you can tell. I, I I don't think Manny or Rude liked each other either. Just from I, the, I don't like think so said, either. The whole thing they threw them together and they look good on the interviews with the uh, you know the belts and everything. I mean they they look good, but they yeah they didn't have that staying power. I I don't know how they who you know, would have thought to put them together. Well, I guess Dusty did, but I I don't know what made him think that or what made him think it would work. Um, he was probably, he didn't have anything to do with Manny, so he probably threw Manny and Rude together. I don't know. I don't know how that happened. I, like I said, it sounded good on paper. You know, you've got these two guys that, or these three guys that kind of all need something to do, and you just put it together and you put the tag team titles on them. It sounded good, and then that match with the Rock and Roll Express, I want to say November 1986, was on TBS, and that was just an awful, awful match. One of the worst Rock and Roll Express matches I've ever seen. And there are people like, oh, no, they were telling a story. I'm like, no, the match sucked. Even in 86, when I didn't really have an opinion on good matches, bad matches, I was like, this match is terrible. Yeah, it, it was hard to, hard to watch. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, like I said, that telling a story thing doesn't doesn't work for me. Jonathan McDonald, I like this question because I think both of you and I can relate to this, Randy. Jonathan McDonald's asked, should they have tried SummerSlam a year earlier? In my opinion, they should not have. And, Randy, you remember what it was like in 80, 87, 88, 89 when – the WWF started adding pay-per-views. The WCW or the NWA started having pay-per-views. And the attitude was like when they introduced SummerSlam in 88, it was like, oh, my God, how many pay-per-views do you people want me to buy? Uh, there was a lot of complaining in the newsletters about it. There was a lot of complaining, you know, just generally speaking to wrestling fans. Like, you know, I, I don't want to spend $30 of 1987 money over and over again. And, of course, 10 years later, there's a pay-per-view every week, but it was a different audience. So, no, I, I think they, in my opinion, they timed it out well. They showed, the WWF showed that, hey, people will buy our pay-per-views. Here's another one you can sell. Pretty much, I think uh, you know it, it did. It, it was getting to the point where I, I like when they were they were running about four pay per views a year would have been a good number. But you know the company wants that money. You add another one until you're up to you know it took about ten years, but eventually they were at one a month, which you know sometimes even more than one a month. But back then, back in 1987, you're right. I mean, a pay-per-view was, I believe, twenty nine ninety five thirty dollars or uh, WrestleMania was forty. It was twenty nine ninety nine out here. Yeah, yeah, that that you know you consider that in in 1987 money. Yeah, that was a lot of money to drop for for something like that. And trying it a year earlier, and, though, and people weren't used to it. Right. Well, not only that, they didn't really. A lot of the cable companies didn't uh, didn't have the pay per view capability yet at that time either. Because uh, I know we didn't. Uh, Good point. The first pay per view I got in my area, and you got to remember back in the back in those days in the late eighties, they didn't have Cox and Xfinity monopolizing everything. Everybody kind of had their own independent cable company, kind of like wrestling territories back then. 
and a lot of them didn't have the capability for the for pay-per-view. The first time I could get pay-per-view was Starcade 88. Prior to Starcade 88, I our, our cable company, we could not order a pay-per-view until uh, Starcade 88, which would have been the end of 1988. Now think about that. You uh, the WWF would have been putting a lot of their television time into promoting something that Randy couldn't buy. Think about that. New York didn't have cable until 1989. That's your biggest market. And in order for a pay-per-view to succeed, you have to push it heavily on TV. Once again, you're pushing something that a lot of people can't buy, and a lot of people don't want to go to closed circuit. But, you know, Randy, you talk about um, uh, how cable companies used to be really small. I mean, 25 years ago, I was still, you know, sending the bill to our cable company in Drake, Massachusetts. Okay. That's where they were located. That's where we got it. And every month I would put on the bill, could you please add E and ESPN2 to your cable system, please? <laughs> and I'm sure someone read it. Yeah. I'm sure they, someone they read, it. read it. They actually read your, you know, if you complained to them, they actually heard you. I mean, because they were an independent, you know, little independent guy. And, you know, like I mentioned, and I would throw in something, too. I think the majority of paper, before I got pay-per-view in 1988, the majority of pay-per-views I got from you. I I had to get, you know, through tape <laughs> trading. I had to, I, I got WrestleMania. I remember I had to get WrestleMania from you. I don't I don't remember what the hell I traded you for it, or I, I don't know. But I know I, I got every pay-per-view from you until they started carrying, you know, pay-per-view in late 1988. I remember January 1988. I mean, we got WrestleMania 2, we got WrestleMania 3, uh, but we did not get Starcade. No one got Starcade. And then a friend of mine uh, in January 1988 talked to me into ordering the uh, Bunkhouse Stampede, right? You know, you know, okay, we'll go in half on it. I, I didn't really care about seeing the card. And the week of the event, I call my cable company to order it, and they don't know what I'm talking about. And the guy actually, he didn't just say, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, he looked into it, and he's like, oh, we, we're not carrying that. We don't even know what it is. So here we are with ancient cable stories. But all right, um. Mark Rockin' Roland asks, hypothetical question, Jerry Lawler in an alternative universe goes to JCP in 1987. Would you book him face or heel? Uh, my answer to that would be Jerry Lawler is the kind of personality you have to bring in as a heel first. The fans uh, in Atlanta are just not going to embrace the Jerry Lawler that we saw in Memphis in 1980. They don't know him yet. Uh, to me, you have to bring him in as a heel. And we, we've been talking about Starcade. How about Jerry Lawler beats R Ric Flair as the heel for the NWA championship and Flair as the babyface wins it back from Lawler? Some people are saying, oh, Lawler wasn't, wasn't a big enough star, or he was small. Look, Lawler got over 
everywhere they gave him a chance to get over, including on WTBS in 1982 when he sent in uh, nasty <laughs> weekly interviews uh, attacking Roddy Piper. And, you know, he's gotten over everywhere he's gone except like Pro Wrestling USA, where they put him out there as a babyface with Tommy Rich against the Road Warriors. Gosh, what a surprise that didn't get over. But yeah, I absolutely would have brought him in as a heel. What do you think, Randy? Same thing, heel. He wouldn't have. He, you can't bring him in a face any, with the exception of Memphis. He wasn't really a baby face anywhere. You got to bring him in as a heel. You can eventually turn him, but no, you got to bring him in as a heel. And in Memphis, he was a heel for years before they he, turned he was him. Back so, you know, same forth, formula yeah. they used in Memphis. Yeah, I mean, back and forth so much. I mean. I, I can't keep track of it, and I don't think anyone can. I mean, if you actually took, you know, a pen and paper and wrote down, you know, Jerry Lawler, the history of Jerry Lawler in Memphis, how many times he turned heel and face, what do you think that paper would look like by the end? Uh, you know, my understanding is he was a, a heel in like he came in as a heel in like 74 and then they turned him in 79 and then you know, they turned him heel in 79 and then he broke his leg and he was immediately back as a baby face i don't think he was a heel in memphis again until 1989 and then they turned him again a baby face in 1990 with the snowman turn and i think he was a a baby face in memphis the whole rest of the way including when he was a baby face or excuse me a heel in the wwf but a baby face in memphis i you know what now i'm dying to see that 1993 memphis again yeah i i I lose track of it i mean between it was amazing the way you know monday night at the mid-south coliseum he'd be a baby face and then you know, a couple hours later, doing a WWF show, he'd be, he'd be a heel. Only he could do that. Uh, but if you bring him in anywhere, you know, going back to the original question, if you bring Jerry Lawler in anywhere, I would not bring him in as a babyface. I would have brought him as a heel. Yeah, same, same here. All right, Randy, your turn for a question, my man. Jeremy Marshall asked the question, would there have been any way to book world class that could have salvaged the promotion? I'm assuming we're dealing with the 1987 roster and we're talking after Mike Von Erich's death. I I think at that point, world class was pretty much done. Um, After after David, I mean, we're going back to uh, 84 here, but after David died... Things kind of, they went downhill a little bit. And then, you know, when Kerry beat Flair for the title, they picked up. But after the end of, uh, you know, beginning of 86, around the time Gino died, it went down and it never came back, in my opinion. I mean, it, it went up a little bit and came down. But at that point, I mean, unless they had a different, you know, somebody in charge other than... Uh, Fritz von Erich, I, I don't think I don't think there was really anything that could have been done to salvage world class at that time, because he didn't want to put anybody over, but you know his kids. I, and, go ahead. I mean, you just hit the nail right on the head. Um, Fritz was not he. Fritz was going to insist 
that the 1987 version of Kevin Von Erich with Kerry out due to his motorcycle accident was going to be the top guy in that promotion, and that was it. He used it as a vehicle to promote his kids. Uh, he was not going to allow a babyface to get pushed in front of Kevin, the only Von Erich who's available now. And the 1987 version of Kevin Von Erich was a shell of prime Kevin Von Erich, an absolute shell. The injuries had gotten to him. It looked like he was tired of the wrestling business in general. He checked and out. Yeah, he, they he eventually checked out. He mentally was, checked out. Yeah. Yeah, and... You know, people can say, well, Eric Embry made himself the number one babyface in 1989. Yeah, because Fritz was out of the picture. Um, it's just the reality that unless you can convince Fritz that, look, you know, we'll push Kevin hard, but we can't push him as the number one guy. Like, someone else has got to be 1A. Maybe even Kevin has to be 1A. I don't think Fritz would have gone for it. And... Kevin, like I said, Kevin was toast by 1987. And, you know, 1987 world class was so awful. And it really had a feel of, okay, we're just keeping the doors open until Kerry comes back and that'll fix everything. And of course it didn't. Right. Yep. Remember when they had, uh, in 1987, when they brought Tony Atlas in and they called him the Black Superman? The Black Superman, Tony Atlas, and they had him, they actually had him in a cape. I, I remember that. That, I, I remember that was summer of 1987, because I remember I watched that, I, I was watching it on TV while it was happening, and I'm like, what the hell are they doing, what kind of angle are they going for here? And it, it just, it, it was so far gone in 1987, and that's actually... You know, how I remember 1987 World Class, the Black Superman, Tony Atlas, they were gone by that time. There, there was no salvaging them by that time. Randy, what is the most pushable aspect of Tony Atlas? Uh, well, going back, you know, uh, he, he, had a, he had a great physique. I mean, the, the way, the way they played is. him off as Mr. USA, Tony Atlas, he, the physique, that was the only... The only thing that really you could have pushed him from. So world class takes this guy who his really his I want to say his only redeeming aspect as a wrestler, but by far his most valuable asset. And let's hide it. Let's get let's put him in a bodysuit. That's crazy. That's- but they did it anyway. <laughs> I I don't know. I like I said. I all I remember was watching that. That the first time I saw that, I I I, I can't even give you my reaction. Like what the what what are they? What the hell? Why why why? I mean, call him the Black Superman and give him a cape, but get rid of the cape when the match starts and have him out there looking like Mr. USA. I mean, in 87, he still had a physique that stood out, and they hid his physique. It was crazy. They did. He, he had a good physique going it was, like I, It was the most backwards booking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember when he was in ICW in 1990, 1991, and, and just being like, okay, this guy still has something. Why isn't, he, why isn't the NWA bringing him in? Anyway, Ah, I'll tell you what, Jose Salas Rodriguez, friend of mine, friend of the show, asks, 
What was your mostly underrated, uh, under the radar, excuse me, favorite moment in wrestling in 1987? I have two answers. Number one, I thought the Ric Flair date with Precious was absolutely horrible. Yet, if any time I see it, J.J. Dillon going into the pool in his suit will never stop being funny to me. That was under the radar. It was a horrible skit, but this one part of the skit cracked me up. My second answer, it's not really a moment. It was a thing. And Randy, I think you're going to agree with me on this. AWA TV in 1987 was largely a train wreck, except for one weekly segment, and that was Paulie Dangerously's Danger Zone. It has largely been forgotten, but it was an incredible segment every week. I, I absolutely loved it. Do, Ray, aside from the ones that I mentioned, do you have anything under the radar from 1987 that you remember fondly? Oh man, I I should have put more thought into that. I, I think off the top of my head, uh, would have been the honky tonk man when he uh, when they set up the whole angle with him and Jake Roberts. I I didn't expect them to play it out the way they did with uh, you know the the whole guitar thing and. That was kind of under the radar for me. I, I don't know what I was expecting there, but you you had mentioned the Ric Flair, the, the Ric Flair Precious date, too. I, I don't think I've thought about that in 20 oh, yeah. or 30 years until now, and I remember the whole thing you're talking about there. That, that was definitely an under-the-radar moment. Um, <laughs> off the top of my head, I, I would have to say the way the way they played out the whole hockey talk man jake roberts thing into you know having alice cooper at wrestlemania i that was kind of under the radar for me i didn't see that happening but it worked out great the way they did it it did i i mean no one expected uh jake roberts to lose a hockey man hockey lose to hockey talk man at wrestlemania 3 i mean no one i figured that you know that was just going to be the end of this character into the mid card or out the door and i did not expect Honky Tonk Man to be main eventing Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden, etc. As the year went on, and you know the guy, he like we said last week, he got it over. Good for him. Oh, yep, he did. All right, yeah, your turn to pick a question, Randy. Uh, I'm looking at a pretty good one here from uh, Dominic Violi, uh, not including WWF and JCP. Who had the most success for the entire year creatively? Okay, for me, I don't really think there's any other answer other than Memphis. If you watch Memphis in 87 with the whole, uh, you know, where Jerry Lawler head shave, you know, where, where Tommy Rich and Austin Idol, Paulie Dangerously, where they shaved Lawler's head, uh, I, Memphis was hot in 1987, and again, Unfortunately, in Pennsylvania, you don't get that. I had to rely on tape trading, and I remember Memphis being hot in 1987. I loved it. I, I looked forward to that tape all the time when I got it in the mail. 
You know, I, we talked a little bit about this last week. I think 87 Memphis is a little bit overrated because the first half of the year was really good. You had Austin Idol, Tommy Rich, Nick Bockwinkle came in, Jeff Jarrett was on the rise, Bam Bam Bigelow was doing great, of course, uh, Paulie Dangerously, who can forget about him. But right around May-June, when Idol, Rich, and Pauly all left at the same time, like after that uh, scaffold match, it was – I mean, Memphis, they had a rough second half of 1987, pushing Brickhouse Brown as this, you know, over-the-top top heel – and it didn't work. You had Jerry Lawler against Don Bass in main events in Memphis. Uh, they brought in Hector Guerrero as a top heel. That didn't work out. Manny Fernandez came and went. But then again, who were their competition? The AWA was was. But yeah, the AWA was horrible. World class was beyond horrible. I mean, it, if I I would pick either Memphis or believe it or not. UWF, like the first three months uh, or the last three months of UWF existence was actually entertaining. I'm trying to think of an indie out there that I, I found interesting, and I can't think of one. They had that WOW outfit out of Atlanta, I think it was, and they weren't very good. Uh, the NWA NWF in Pennsylvania wasn't good. I'm, I'm sure there's something out there that I'm forgetting that was at least entertaining, but I can't think uh, – uh, the Savoldi's promotion uh, was not very good. So at the end of the day, I'm going to either Memphis or Mid-South, which isn't really a, a reflection of how great they were. It's like, okay, you know, the, the chair, oh, Portland, let's not forget about how bad they were. ICW was, was Savoldi's promotion, and they sucked. So I, I'm sure there was something out there under the radar that I'm forgetting about, but I, I can't think of I can't think of what it is. Yeah, offhand, there wasn't a lot. Right. I mean, by that time, you know, in 1987, things were kind of winding down with everything independent. But, yeah, there's not much to pick from. Yeah, 1986. I mean, the beginning of 1986 versus the end of 1986, the wrestling business, you know, it was now a three-horse race, and Vince McMahon was way ahead of the other two horses, and, you know, world-class and the AWA clearly had been left behind. All right, Richard J. Conroy asks, do you think Kurt Henning made the right choice by staying in the AWA, or do you think he should have gone to JCP? He probably would have gone to the WWF eventually. We talked a little bit about this last week. Kurt Henning in 1987, I don't think kids do this anymore, but like it was big in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where a young person would take a year off from college or take a year off after graduating college to go backpacking in Europe or something like that, to see the world, to, you know, to take advantage of that one year where you don't have to enter the workforce right away. You know, you're not going to get this chance ever again. So take advantage of it. And that's what Kurt Henning as AWA champion in 1987 struck me as like, okay, I'll take a year of my life and I'll have fun being the AWA champion like I've wanted to be all my life. And in the end, it didn't hurt him. It was like, like I said, GC just took that year, had his fun, and went to the WWF in 1988. What do you think, Randy? Pretty much uh, the same thing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on the same. Hennig, if I think about how he would have worked out, I, I kind of think. Hennig, at that time, he might have got lost in the shuffle a little bit. 
I don't think it would have hurt his career any, but I don't yeah. think uh, I, I don't think he would have had. I mean, you look at Hennig. I, I look at Hennig as a you know former AWA World Champion, and you know he. I don't know if he would have gotten any titles in JCP if he went there, but I, I don't think. Uh, I think Hennig staying with the AWA was the right move for him. I think he kind of would have got lost in the shuffle in 1987 in, in JCP. I could be wrong, but I I don't know how they would have played him, put it that way. And trying to imagine how they would have played him, I think, I think he would have got lost in the shuffle somewhere in there. You know, you made a really good point, Randy. You made a really good point about him potentially getting lost in the shuffle. By being the AWA champion for a year, what Kurt Hennig, and staying in the AWA was the equivalent of going to college after high school versus going into the workforce after high school. Henning spent a year making himself way more valuable because if you're, you're right, had he gone to the WWF or NWA, he easily could have gotten lost in the shuffle. But by being AWA champion for a year, he, he made himself more valuable I mean, JCP was definitely interested in him. They didn't want to make him a horseman. Otherwise, he might have gone there. And he got a huge push in the WWF, a push that I do not think he would have gotten 12 months earlier. Right. All right, Randy, throw out a question. And I, By the way, I want to thank everyone in the Facebook group for providing us with these questions. That Even if we don't get to it, and we got a lot of them, so we're not going to get to all of them. I apologize. But I, I want to thank you guys for throwing those out there. I, I had to close the thread like not even an hour after putting it up. And I, like I said, thank you, everyone. I'm looking at one here from uh, George Captor Jr. And, uh, in 1987, he went to a TV taping in Buffalo where the Hockey Talk Man beat Steamboat for the title. Uh, saw him defend the title at least four more times that night. How much longer did the WWF do these five-hour events for TV? I don't recall any five-hour... That must have been a nightmare, uh, a five-hour wrestling show, but... Uh, I don't know. I, I you might be a little bit more familiar with that than I am. Do you do you know of any five hour TV tapings that occurred? Randy, I, I'm glad we got to this question because in 1991, I went to a taping in it was summer 1991. I went to a taping in Worcester, Massachusetts, where it, they did Saturday Night's main event. And they did Wrestling Superstars, and it lasted more than six hours, my friend. Oh, my God. More than six hours. It was insane. And people were leaving. It was summer. There was no school the next day. It didn't matter. People. It was a Tuesday night, if I remember correctly. And people were leaving, and they were like, no, coming up soon. Hulk Hogan's going to be out here against the Honky Tonk Man. And people had just had it. <laughs> now, here's the topper. The next, I don't know what made me do this. The next night, I drove up to Portland, Maine for the Wrestling Challenge tapings, which went about four and a half hours. I mean, talk about just being a, a masochist. My God, you had, yeah, the whole you, thing was fun. But. You were inflicting punishment on yourself at that point. 
<laughs> and I remember being like, you know, oh man, I, I I'd already bought the tickets. It sounded like a good idea. Back to back wrestling nights, and I was thinking about just staying home. And I mean, I I went drove up to Portland and met, and met friends, but I mean, I drove to Portland and back by myself, and it was it was just a long two days, believe me. And then in 1993. They did a taping for superstars at the Lowell Memorial Auditorium once again on a weeknight. And by then, I was one of the people who left early. But it was a marathon taping, and I got the hell out of there. But to answer George's question, I think they stopped doing that when Wrestling Challenge and Wrestling Superstars became less and less uh, part of their successful equation. I think when Raw... Uh, was started in early 1993. The syndicated package became less and less uh, important, and that eventually went away. So I think mid-90s is right around the time that stopped. Right. All right. Um, David Lane, I'm glad we got to this question. This is Jeremy Marshall, excuse me. The first thing I thought of when I noticed this topic, if, if okay, Basically, the question is, Jeremy Marshall asked the question, David Lane contributed, that, like, what if Memphis and Southeast and Florida and Gulf Coast, what if they all merged and came into this mega promotion where they're competing now against Crockett and McMahon and, you know, you've got that Southeast corner of the country. Could that have worked? My honest answer is no, and it starts with, okay, how do you merge? Like, whoever owned Continental at the time versus Jarrett owning Memphis, I mean, how do you put those two together, let alone getting Mike Graham involved from Florida? And, you know, it just it would have been really hard to do. I, I just can't see it, um, especially – 1987 was kind of late in the game. Let's be honest, with a handful of exceptions, uh, one of them being Jerry Lawler, another one being Jeff Jarrett. You know, th- those were a, g- a bunch of guys that, frankly, the WWF just didn't want. They were guys who were calling WWF and JCP every now and then, saying, "Hey, you know, do you have a spot open for me?" Because even a minor role in one of those companies was better than a major role in Memphis. I mean, let's let's be honest. You know, I, I was talking about Brickhouse Brown getting a big push in Memphis. Well, in '86, he was a jobber in the WWF. Manny Fernandez quits the NWA, and that's how he winds up in Memphis. So. You're already running basically with cast-offs. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that in a derisive manner, but it's true. I mean, it's just the next level down from JCP and the WWF, and I think the fans, even if you could have worked through the merger part, and let's face it, you know, Jeff Jar- Jerry Jarrett's not going to like all of Mike Graham's ideas. The Fullers aren't going to like all of either one of those guys' ideas. It, it just doesn't work. But, Randy, your thoughts on this matter? Same thing. I'll tell you what, too. Um, you know, one thing you got to take into consideration here, you know, when you when you get to the uh, if you can get a promotion like that, a merge promotion off the ground, eventually you're going to get to the point of, OK, who's going to go over here, your guy or my guy? You're going to get to the point where. You know, you're going to be putting guys in a room where every promotion is going to want their guy to be the top guy. On top of that, you need, back in 87, you need TV time. You need to get that, 
you know, the syndication on TV, you know, could they have gotten TV time? Could they have gotten a promotion off the ground? I don't know. It depends on what kind of, what TV slot you had and how many people were into it. What kind of product you put out? Could you draw people in? Maybe to a few hardcore wrestling fans, an idea like that would have been terrific. I mean, look at Pro Wrestling USA in 1985. Terrific idea. Did it work? No, it did not. Excellent point on Pro Wrestling USA. Another one, just a year later, we have Super Clash 3. A Wow, the AWA in Memphis and everyone else gets on pay-per-view. And both Jerry Lawler and Kerry Von Erich show up in Chicago thinking that they're going to win the unification match. And they had to come up with a, a negotiated settlement with Kerry the night of the event. Okay, Kerry, you're going to lose, but you're going to lose because we stopped the match for blood. They were both in told different stories, I heard. Yep. They were, they were both told, hey, you're going over. And then in the dressing room, Kerry Von Erich... You know, they both realized, well, we're not both going over, so we got to figure something out. And of course, uh, Jerry Lawler pulls what he pulled after that. And, you know, whether or not you can blame him, that's debatable. Uh, but I mean, look at Jerry Lawler in 1988 or 87. You know, it was 88, excuse me. He wins the AWA championship and he goes around to Continental uh, and whatever promotional take him to defend the AWA championship. And it looked really good at the time on paper but it really it didn't draw it didn't draw more than they were drawing any other night when lawler showed up and i mean there you go it's just not that simple all right i'm glad we had time to get to this question rob nelson had andre the giant gone into business for himself uh and shot on hulk hogan what impact would that have done to the wwf obviously we're talking about wrestlemania 3 I mean, I, I, I don't think there is a chance that that would have happened. So, uh, David Lane actually said Andre was too loyal to Vince Sr. and eventually to Vince Jr. to shoot on anybody. Maybe that's true. Andre, on the other hand, was ready to join Herb Abrams' UWF, and you heard that correctly before Vince was like, okay, Andre, we'll, we'll take you back. You can be in the sheep herder's corner going around the horn. Andre appeared on a Clash of the Champions uh, in 1992, so he wasn't spectacularly loyal, but I think for Andre to pull that at WrestleMania 3, I mean, there's just no alternative universe where I think he would have even tried that. And here's the thing, Andre was broken down in 1987, and had he tried going into business with Hulk Hogan, I don't think that would have ended very well for him. I mean, Andre went into business with himself against Akira Maeda in 1986, and it very it came really close to not ending well for him. I mean, he had basically had to back down from Maeda. Now, is Hogan Maeda? No, but Hulk Hogan is this legit six 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 seven mountain of muscle. You don't just and he got he was trained by Matsuda, so I think people kind of underestimate. You know, how it, it, it to say it wouldn't have been easy is an understatement, even if Andre had tried it. Any thoughts on this, Randy? Yeah, I mean, by this point, like you had mentioned, Andre was pretty much, you know, 15% of what he used to be. Uh, if he had gone into business, if, if he had gotten yeah. Hulk Hogan down 
Hogan wouldn't have a shot. I mean, Andre would have he he would have destroyed him if he would have him down and keep him down. But I think as far as you know, the alternate universe they're talking about there, uh, I agree with you. A lot of people do underestimate Hulk Hogan. Uh, you know, when it comes to can the guy really you know do what Paul Orndorff and Rick Rude did and kick somebody's ass outside the ring? He probably could have. You know, he probably could have. Could he have done that to Andre in 1987? Maybe. We'll never know. Probably, I think. Yeah, we'll never know. I mean, um, but it, it would have that would have been interesting, though. I mean, if nothing else, that that that's a fun thing to think about. But it just you knew it would never happen. I mean, if, you know what? The more I think about it, if Andre had really planned this out, and again, we're we're deep into fantasy land here, and just come down with all his weight, with his knees on the back of Hulk Hogan's legs, yeah, that would have been it for Hulk Hogan for a while. But I mean, you know, I, like I said, we're we're so deep into fantasy land that that just was never going to happen. I wish we had more time to answer more questions, but. The hour always goes by so fast. Randy Smith, I want to thank you for once again uh, coming on Stick to Wrestling, and I hope to have you back soon. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank uh, Brian Last for giving me this platform. I want to thank Lou Kippelman, for who makes this show sound way better than it deserves. And this has been a product of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day.